The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Let's turn now to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And to start off, I have to say, uh, our family loves sweets. We do. I said it. You can rebuke me later if you're a dentist. Uh, We really do. And, uh, you know, I didn't really think I had a sweet tooth till I married Amy, and she changed all that. Uh, her love for tasty treats has slowly won me over, and her love for musicals has also had a positive influence on my life, for that's another, for another sermon. Uh, all five of us like sweets in some form. That's just, that goes without saying. Amy loves cookies and pastries, and if you're going for candy, she likes gummy bears, Uh, So do I, and I like hard candies like Spree and Gobstoppers, and my favorite cookie is a chocolate chip cookie. Easton is not a fan of candies, but he loves ice cream. And I might get an amen from from him if he heard me say that. He, He does love ice cream. Colton and Ellie will eat just about anything with trace amounts of sugar in them, but they particularly enjoy cookies and chocolate, and Ellie's always asking me for some chocolate, typically after dinner. Colton prefers pie over cake, and he really likes fruit roll-ups. So all of us like sweets in some form. We, we do. We really do. And I'm sure that you've noticed as a child yourself or as a parent of a child, you know that a child can go through a fair amount of discomfort and pain even if they know a sweet treat is coming in the future, Right? That's probably how it was for you growing up. You've seen that in your own kids or people, kids that you've known. They will trudge through their schoolwork. They'll, they will labor over chores. They will choke down their broccoli if they know that their pain will be rewarded by a, cho- a bowl of Rocky Road ice cream or a snickerdoodle cookie. In every instance, these children, our children, your children, and when you, our children uh, and your children, and when you were a kid, included all of us were exercising faith. We were willing to endure a time of uncomfort or discomfort if we knew that in the future there lied a reward for our endurance through that discomfort. And while these are light-hearted descriptions and light-hearted examples, the essence of genuine faith in Christ is. Somewhat similar to the faith that a child exercises when they are trying to make it through a difficult situation with the hopes of reward in a future. You know, as I thought about that this week, I, I, I came to the conclusion that it's no wonder that Jesus likens our faith to the faith of a child. We must be like children to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said that. It meant a number of things, but at the very least, we can see that children must or have children learn how to wait patiently if they know a reward is coming? They, they just naturally know how to do that. And here in Hebrews chapter 11, there's a passage, we're in a passage that we've been in uh, through in a while, for a while here, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith because the author of Hebrews is taking us through many examples of people who were able to endure difficulty in their present life because they knew they had a future reward coming. I made the argument last time we were together that Enoch and Abel and Noah, they are able to endure life in this fallen world among sinners, and they are able to endure a myriad of temptations because they are looking something for something better than what this life had to offer. They were seeking and expecting a greater satisfaction, a greater reward, a greater pleasure 
than what this life had to offer. They were willing to set aside the lesser pleasures of sin and the lesser pleasures of an inordinate devotion to this life for the greater pleasure that was to come. They were anticipating a future inheritance that would make all the pain and trouble that they were experiencing at that present moment totally worth it. They saw that God was faithful to his promise. See, the the Christian life is not a life of resisting and fighting sin by sheer willpower and making it through tough times through mere grit and determination. There are plenty of people in the world, you can just get on YouTube, and you can hear from and read of people, plenty of people who have made it through challenging, hard times in their life by sheer determination. They make it through difficult trials, but they give no credit to Christ. They attribute their ability to make it through their tough situations to their own personal fortitude and their no-quit attitude, and they end up getting the glory. But the Christian life isn't like that. The Christian life isn't a life of overcoming sin through sheer willpower or grit and determination. It's a life of seeking a greater reward. It's a life of leaning on a promise of a greater satisfaction in the future. The Christian life is a life of bearing trouble and trial now because I know that there's a future reward coming that will make it all worth it. Honestly, I don't have what it takes in me to persevere through trials and temptations. I don't. I'm weak. I need hope in a better future. I need hope of being with God forever. I need the hope that whatever difficulty I am bearing with now, God will make it all worth it in the future so I can remain obedient and I can remain submissive to His will and glorify Him. I need that promise. And so do you. That's the Christian life. It's leaning on those promises, not trying to get through life and through difficulty by mere willpower. But I think many of us actually think that way. This is how we tend to think. We think like this. Here's a temptation. The temptation presents pleasure and satisfaction. If I indulge in that lust or that temptation to have an angry outburst, or if I indulge in that bitterness, or if I indulge in that theft, I will get some pleasure. There's no denying it. I will get some pleasure. But those things are wrong, so I must not do them. Therefore, I resolve to not do them. And then we hear also how Scripture calls us to live lives of holiness and and self-denial and to to love others sacrificially and to lay down our interests for others. And we try and try and try to do that, and we fail and fail and fail because we are striving by our own willpower. Does that sound familiar to anybody, or is it just me? You're just listening in to my, my wrestling with the Christian life. I think a lot of us tend to think that way. Yes, anger and bitterness and theft and lust are sinful and wrong. But knowing they're wrong and resisting them on that basis is is only a part of the recipe for overcoming sin. Yes, we must live lives of Christ's exalting sacrifice and love. We're called to. There's no denying that. But it's not enough merely to attempt to obey Christ's radical call to obedience. There's another vital ingredient that we must mix in to the recipe. And what is it? It's that we must believe that God's promises are what? They're better than sin. They're better. They taste better. They provide more enduring satisfaction. They provide a deeper pleasure. They last forever. They're of a higher quality. 
A crucial ingredient to overcoming sin is believing that the enjoyment of God and a good conscience in this life and the unfettered enjoyment of God in the next life is infinitely better than and more satisfying than sin in a life of self-centered ease. That's the crucial ingredient. And, I'm a, I, and I wonder how many of us have grasped that. We say we live by grace, but we actually are living by willpower. Trying to overcome sin by something other than faith. Something other than faith in a greater satisfaction. A greater promise. Just to illustrate, if you had a chocolate chip cookie or tiramisu or fill in the blank, I don't know, not everybody here likes a chocolate chip cookie, which I find hard to believe, but I'll, I'll, I'll allow it. So if you have a chocolate chip cookie in front of you or a nice sweet, some of you guys like Boba, Boba's can be, a boba drink can be sweet and you enjoy that. Some sweet treat or tiramisu, something like that. And if you laid it out alongside of a crusty old piece of bread and someone commanded you, eat that cookie, it wouldn't be a hard command to obey. It wouldn't be a, a hard decision to make. You'd have no problem obeying that command and eating the cookie because you could clearly see the superior pleasure of the cookie over that stale piece of bread. Future weight gain notwithstanding. Yeah, I get it. I know. I know. But you understand the point. It's not difficult to obey the command to enjoy something that provides a greater pleasure. Or say you have some money to spend on a new vehicle and you go to the lot in the, the dealer says, listen, if you just, which they would never say, I know, but they say, just wait a little bit. Don't spend your money today. Just wait a little bit. And in a, in a few weeks, we're going to be clearing out all these old models because we've got to get the new models onto the lot. And just wait a few weeks, and you'll be able to get a better car for the same or lower cost than you could get today. Just wait a few weeks. And knowing that, knowing you would be able to secure something better in the future would enable you to be able to drive your old clunker for the next few months, right? Because you're looking forward in faith. The decision... To, to receive that greater reward, that greater pleasure, it's not a hard decision to make. When it comes to spiritual realities, faith is the supernatural ability to see that God and His promises are better than what sin and this life have to offer. Faith is the supernatural ability to see that God and His promises are better than what sin and this life have to offer. It is it is the ability to see God's promises that enabled the saints of old to persevere through difficult, challenging, non-ideal circumstances and to continue to follow their God. God didn't command them to follow Him by sheer willpower. He gave them promises. On their pilgrimage through this life, these saints of old were not looking to set up permanent home on earth. They were looking for a heavenly city that was infinitely better. They were looking for the reward. All of them. This side of God's future promises enable them to persevere in faith through this life. And so now in this text today, we're going to consider three actions that flow out of a supernatural future-looking faith. Three actions that flow out of a future-looking supernatural faith. If you're following me with your outlines, you can see here in verse Verses 8 through 10, faith obeys because it sees a future inheritance. Faith obeys because it sees a future inheritance. Faith obeys. That's what we see in Abraham. 
Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why? For he was looking for the reward. He was looking forward to that city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. If we were to turn back to the text in Genesis 12, where God comes to Abraham out of the blue and says to him, go to a land that I will show you, you find in Abraham no hesitancy whatsoever. He just goes. In fact, that's what the text indicates here. By faith, Abraham obeyed. The the, uh, words in this text indicate that Abraham obeyed immediately. And that's what Genesis 12 would lead you to believe, that Abraham obeyed immediately. God comes to him, and he gives him a very challenging promise, doesn't he? Or a very challenging command, rather. He says this. He says, I want you to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Leave your extended family, pull up stakes, make a long journey, bring all your possessions and servants and livestock with you to a place that is, at this current point, undisclosed. That's what I want you to do, Abraham. And apparently in Hebrews, and apparently in that text in Genesis, there was no hesitation. It was immediate obedience. But here's what's even more intriguing. is the fact that once that Abraham got to the land that God had promised to him and his offspring, he was content. It blows me away. He was content to live as a stranger and a sojourner in the land that God had promised him. He would wander in that land, and yet that was the very land that God said, I promise to give to you and to your offspring. How could Abraham, when he had been called away from his home to become a perpetual nomad, be content to live as a stranger in the very land that had been promised to him? How could he do that? Did he just buck up and say, I'm just going to do it? This is what godliness is? I'm just going to suck it up, I'm going to... Strap on my sandals, I'm going to do this for however long it takes, because that's the kind of person that I am. I'm Abraham. Is that what he did? My, dad, my daddy showed me how to persevere through tough, tough times. That's who I am. Is that what he did? Is that where he got his motivation? Is that where he got his energy and his perseverance? Well, that's where a lot of people get their perseverance and energy today. But that's not faith. Well, at least it's not faith in God. It's faith in whom? It's faith in yourself. It's not the kind of faith that pleases God, and it's ultimately not the kind of faith that is saving faith. How did Abraham get through this period of life where he was content to wander in the very place that God had promised him and his offspring? Verse 10, for he was looking forward to that city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. That's an amazing statement, and the author is actually going to expand on that in verses 13 through 16, and we'll get there in a moment. But what we see here is that Abraham is resting his hopes on God's faithfulness and a future inheritance, even when his present circumstances seem to negate or call into question the timing or fulfillment of God's promises. He is told to go. He is given a massive promise by God. This land is yours. I will bless you. I will give it to your offspring. Now go to the the place where I will show you. And he is wandering. And during this time, he's not only wandering, but he is without a child uh, from his own body. How is God going to fulfill this promise to give me many offspring? 
And so the circumstances in his life actually appear to suggest that the promises won't be fulfilled. And yet he is content to continue to wander as a sojourner and a stranger. Why? Because he had a future-looking faith that saw past the circumstances into what he would receive in that future heavenly inheritance. Abraham believed God would grant him a permanent city, even if he was presently wandering in tents. Abel was, Abraham was able to put up with the trouble and transience of his living situation because he was looking forward to the eternal permanence of a, an eternal home. That's how he was able to do it. Not by sheer grit and determination, but by believing that something better was coming, even if right now it doesn't seem like that could happen. I believe God is faithful. He fixed his eyes on God's faithfulness and looked forward to a future reward. Faith in the book of Hebrews, faith in Hebrews chapter 11, is a forward, future-oriented faith. It is seeing through our present circumstances into the future inheritance that God has promised for us. So that's what we see in Abraham. We're going to come back to him in a moment. In fact, all of them and talk about this heavenly inheritance that they were anticipating. But let's now look at Sarah and see that in verses 11 and 12, that faith looks through hard circumstances and holds a, beholds a faithful God. Faith looks through hard circumstances and beholds a faithful God. I see this in the life of Sarah. Verse 11, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and in him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Sarah had been barren her entire life. And this is a, a grief for some women. To be barren your whole life and to not be able to bear a child and to raise a child. And she is in her old age and well beyond the age of childbearing. It's, it's not a physical possibility anymore in Sarah's case. The time of woman has passed her, so to speak. That's what the text here, passed the time. She's, her body is no longer able physically to produce a child. She's not producing in her body what is necessary in order to have a child. And then to add to that burden, however, is the promise made to her husband that said that he would be the father of many, many, many offspring. And yet here she is, barren, and not only barren, but unable now. We are past the point of no return. You can't have children, Sarah. How could the promise come about? How could it happen? Only by a divine intervention and a miraculous work of God, because these were, mark this word, impossible circumstances. Impossible this is the realm where God works. He works with the impossible, or at least the seemingly impossible, the humanly impossible. God promised to make her husband a great nation, yet she has been unable to produce any children, and now she's physically unable to produce children. As far as the human perspective is concerned, this is truly an impossible situation. The promise cannot, from a human perspective, the promise cannot be fulfilled. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, it's amazing, given that situation, Sarah believed that God who made the promise could be trusted by faith. Sarah herself received the power to conceive even when she was past the age. Since why? Since she considered him faithful 
Isn't that incredible? You look around at a situation that is absolutely, humanly speaking, impossible. A woman her age, past the age of childbearing, who's been barren her whole life, they don't have children. You don't have children. That's, it's not a possibility. She looks through her circumstances and she beholds one thing. God is faithful. He's going to bring it about somehow. It's going to be, one, it's going to be great when we see this in Abraham uh, next week, when Abraham is willing to sacrifice his own son. Nevertheless, here in Sarah, she believes that God is faithful to his promise. He'll bring it about somehow. And through that, she was able now to conceive by faith, it says. She believed that her circumstances did not dictate the fulfillment of God's promise. We've got to lock that in because we're going to camp out on that in a little bit. The promise would be fulfilled regardless of what the circumstances seem to say. It's the way God works. And for this reason, the reason her believing in God's faithfulness, she received the power to conceive a child in her old age, a total miracle from heaven. And Abraham becomes the, the, the father of millions of descendants. And here we are today, and they are still around. Now, using Abraham and Sarah as examples of faith is an interesting strategy, I think, for the author of Hebrews. Because the historical narrative in Genesis tells us that Abraham and Sarah's faith was far from perfect. Amen? I mean, it was far from perfect. God had promised his protection to Abraham, that he would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him, and he would be with him. And He had promised those things in Genesis 12 and But soon after receiving the promise, while he and Sarah are in Egypt, Abraham lies, he has to lie, he has to sin in order to cover his relationship with Sarah, calling her his sister so that she wouldn't be and he wouldn't be accosted by the Pharaoh in Egypt. So in his case, his faith is not perfect. Right? He kind of stumbles a little bit there, you, you might say. Yet the general direction of his life is one of faith. And this should be so encouraging to us. You've probably heard it before. It's all about direction, not perfection. And that is, that is the case in the Christian life. Abraham's direction was a faith-filled life. He believed God, but his faith wasn't always perfect. And neither was Sarah's. After Abraham had received the promise of offspring that would come from his own body, Sarah arranged to have Abraham sleep with her servant Hagar to produce offspring. Well, what's that all about? She, Her faith wasn't perfect at that point. She wasn't believing this promise. I've got to arrange, I've got to manipulate the situation here. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to wait on God's timing. This was an act of hasty unbelief and an attempt to fill God's promise on her own terms. And then, when God visits Abraham and Sarah and reveals that Abraham and Sarah will have a child, she laughs. Like, how is that going to happen? With a bit of incredulity. She was, how is that going to happen? So her faith is not perfect, yet the author of Hebrews tells us that eventually she did believe God's promise so that she was able to conceive a child. The author's point is to highlight that Sarah, by faith, was able to see past her seemingly impossible situation and behold a faithful God. We have to be able to do this. We have to be able to meditate upon God's promise until the clouds of our circumstances part so we can see and see and behold the shining sun of God's faithfulness. 
And it doesn't come automatically. It is something that needs to be sought and meditated upon. But nevertheless, she sees God as faithful. The living God will do what he says he will do. If he makes a promise, he will keep it. And the direction of her life is one of faith. You know, some of us might be wondering how in the world God's going to bring about his promise of a new heaven's and a new earth where righteousness dwells, where only righteousness dwells. We look around and we're like, how is that even going to happen? I, the circumstances, like, how, how, Lord, how are you going to do that? It looks like sin has the upper hand. It looks like evil has the upper hand. God, are you really in control? You just step back from a biblical perspective for a moment and just read the news for five minutes. You could leave going, is God really in control? It doesn't seem like it. I can't explain the good that could come out of all of this. You, wonder, you might wonder how the gospel is going to make it to every people group in the world. Evil seems like it has the upper hand. Closed countries, severe persecution in sections of Africa, Europe, and the Middle East. How's God going to bring that about? But I think we need to remember that there was a time that was actually much worse than our contemporary situation. Let me tell you what I mean. There was a time in history when it seemed absolutely certain that evil had triumphed over good. Absolutely. If you want to look at a time when it was, from a human perspective, clear and definitive that evil had won, all you have to do is look to the cross of Jesus Christ. The Son of God was crucified. The Son of God, God Himself incarnate, was laid in a grave. If there was ever a time when evil had won, it was then. Right? In terms of human circumstances, human perception. How could God save his people now? He's dead. He's in the grave. But in that entire event, God was actually fulfilling his promise to save his people. In the death of Christ, Christ overcame death. He overcame the grounds by which you can be accused by the devil, namely your guilt and sin. He, overcome, he overcame the power of death because he overcame the power of sin. He bore God's wrath on the cross. This is what he was doing in that death. Yet from a human perspective, evil had overcome. Oh, no, 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 no. Evil was about to be defeated definitively for good. And then he rises from the dead and destroys death forever and secures the victory. So... There's a time when it was absolutely the case that evil had won. And yet God was in full control the entire time to bring about the greatest good the world has ever known. So can we trust him to bring about the good that he has promised his people? Absolutely. Some, might have, some of us might be wondering, how will God finish the good work he began in me? That promise in Philippians, that wonderful promise. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Isn't that a wonderful promise? I bank on that promise. But some of us might be thinking, how can he do that? My life is full of weakness and sin and mistakes. How is he ever going to overcome those things? My life is full of immaturity and a myriad of failings. Or some of you might be in such a severe trial right now, and we're actually going to really touch on this next week, so this is just a preview, but some of you might be in such a severe trial right now, you do not even conceive of the way in which God can fulfill his promise in Romans 8.28, that he'll work all these things together for good. You can't even conceive of a way that what you're going through right now could possibly come out for your good. 
From a human's perspective, God's promises appear to be in question in your own life. Sarah's situation was the same. But it is by seeing through her circumstances to the faithfulness of God, and that's exactly why you have this scripture, so that you can trace God's faithfulness at every step along redemptive history, so that your faith will be strengthened to see God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful. He is always faithful to do what he says he's going to do. So Sarah was able to see through those circumstances to a faithful God and to believe his promises, even though everything in her present experience was telling her not to believe those promises. That's why we have to have the scripture. That's why we have to have preaching. That's why we have to have teaching. That's why we have to have one another encouraging us, encouraging our, uh, uh, each other, encouraging the, the body, because we are prone to forget the faithfulness of God. Don't think for one moment that the appearance of your present circumstances or the circumstances on a national or even global level dictate the fulfillment of God's promise. It's God's pattern, if we haven't seen it already. It's God's pattern to display His power by creating impossible situations where the only possible solution is God Himself. And you know why He does that? Do you know why He does that? He does it so that He will be the only person who gets the glory. We can't take credit. I'm just trusting a promise. That's all I'm doing. I'm just trusting a promise. I'm so weak and so frail, all I can do is trust a promise that you're going to make it all worth it, Lord. You're going to work it out all for my good. Don't know how, but you are, and you're good, and you proved it. And he's the one who gets all the glory. So, Faith obeys, faith sees, and now faith perseveres because this is now verses verses 13 through 16. Faith perseveres because it is looking for a heavenly city. Faith perseveres because it is looking for a heavenly city. Verse 13, stunning statement. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised. (laughs) Excuse me? They didn't receive the things promised. How did they keep going? But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They never received the fullness of the promises in this life. They all died in faith. Neither Abraham or Jacob or Isaac or Sarah got to see the, or experience the fullness of God's promise to them. They didn't get to see the massive offspring that Abraham and Sarah would produce, and which is still being produced to this day. They didn't get to see a nation that would come from them and established in the promised land. They didn't get to see that. And as the authors already noticed, they were willing to live as nomads and strangers and sojourners in the very land in the very land that God had promised them. Listen to how Abraham himself describes his life in Genesis 23:4. Sarah has already died and he's looking for a place to bury his wife. He's in the land of Canaan, the, the promised land, and he's and it's occupied at this point by Hittites. 
And he asks for a plot of land to bury his wife. And he describes himself like this, quote, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I might bury my dead out of my sight. A sojourner and a stranger in the very land that God had promised him. How could he, how could he live like that? How, he could be, how could you be content to live like that? Because his faith saw into a future inheritance that went beyond even an earthly inheritance. People who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. A homeland that he could go back to. In the ancient Near East, just like today, people liked their homeland. They, they loved their homeland. It was a place to go back to after you had lived for some time and it was you could you would live out in other places but then you would return to your homeland that's something common in our times it's common in the ancient near east but that's not what he was doing he wasn't looking for the the ability to go back to his homeland rather he was looking for a future heavenly inheritance the author of hebrews makes it clear that abraham sarah isaac and jacob's wandering was not due to their desire to eventually make it back to mesopotamia they wandered in tents because they were looking for a heavenly inheritance. That's how they could stay content. All of these people of the promise were able to live as sojourners and strangers in the place that God promised them because they had their eyes set on something beyond even this life, a heavenly city, a dwelling place that has foundations that can't be shaken, that is built by God himself. That's what they were looking for. And God has promised you an inheritance he has promised you an eternal rest. He's promised you a new body that will not, will no longer be racked with illness and weakness and physical ailments. He's promised you that. He's promised you resurrection. But these promises are not fulfilled yet. Yet is such a key and important theological word. That's what the health and wealth and prosperity gospel gets wrong. They want you to believe that financial wholeness and wealth and earthly rule is now and that you should demand it now. God's word says that those things are coming, just not yet. They're not for this life. God says that you must wait with patience and endure suffering and deprivation and lack of fulfillment now. That's what you must experience and endure. That's what I must experience and endure now. We must be willing to live like Abraham as a stranger and sojourner in this life facing ridicule and deprivation and lack and unfulfilled desires and trouble and pain and disappointment. There's a cross before a crown. There is suffering before glory. If you get that, you get the Bible and you'll get the Christian life. In this life, we will experience trials for Christ's sake, financial trouble, health woes, difficulties in the home. And very few of us will be ever in a position of significant earthly authority or glory. Some of us feel like strangers in our own homes because we're the only believer among a group of unbeliever, unbelieving family members. Some of us feel like strangers and sojourners in our jobs because we hold much different views about God and life than our colleagues do. All of us must feel like strangers and sojourners in our current culture that rejoices over what God hates. We must be willing to be a stranger in the very place that our Heavenly Father owns and has promised us. Peter himself describes this like this. He says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, that's who we are, sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 
Sojourners and exiles. That's who we are in this life. That's who the people of old were in their life. That's who Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah were. But there is coming a heavenly city that will be yours in Christ. There you will be with the Lord Jesus. You will be in a resurrected body that will never again be sick or wear out or die. You will have infinite resources at your disposal at all times. You will have a stable home that will never be moved. You will no longer have to fear theft or violence or evil against you or against the people that you love. You will be given a position of great authority and you will rule the universe with Christ and your fellow brothers and sisters. It's all coming. Just not yet. You will own everything. All of this is yours, but just not yet. Now we must sojourn. By faith, we can see that that heavenly city is coming. In fact, the author of Hebrews even says that in coming to Christ, we have already come to that heavenly city in some measure. Let's look over here in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24, just briefly. This is what he says. We've come to that heavenly city in some measure, not in its fullness. Verse 18, he says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg for no further messages to be spoken to them. Referring to the Old Covenant. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have come to Mount Zion. You are no longer under the old covenant. Under the old covenant, when God revealed himself, it scared everybody half to death, and you couldn't get near it. Now in Christ, you're able to actually come into God's very throne room. You have come to this Mount Zion, this heavenly city that we are anticipating will someday come down in its fullness. You get to taste of that right now. You get to experience that right now. You are part of that city right now. Just not in its fullness yet. In the new covenant, when you come to Christ and receive the forgiveness of sins, you don't come to a terrifying terrifying Mount Doom like they did in the old covenant. You come to a city that's throwing a big party, that's welcoming you in. And I think you get a little taste of this heavenly party every time you worship and fellowship with the church. This, this heavenly Mount Zion, this place of worship and, and, and exaltation of God, we're getting a little taste of that. It's going to be for all eternity. We get a little taste of that here in our worship and fellowship together. Remember what we said about faith a few weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1? Faith is the ability to be able to taste what's in the future and bring it into the present. And that's what's happening here in chapter 12. We have been able to come, through, come to this heavenly city in some measure. A little bit, just not in its fullness yet. Now let's turn from here as we, as we finish up. Let's turn from there now to Revelation. This city that is referred to. This heavenly city. So we can get a glimpse of this heavenly city and so that we can fix our eyes on this inheritance 
and therefore be content to live as strangers and aliens in this world, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah. This is from the Apostle John, from his pen, and he's describing near the new earth on which all believers will live for all eternity. And this comes after the final judgment. At the end of history, death and sin will be forever cast away from our presence, the presence of God and the presence of God's people, and then God will welcome in this inheritance that He has promised to His people. Revelation chapter 1, verse... Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth... For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is not pie in the sky. This is not cliche. This is a description of exactly what Christians are looking for. This is what the inheritance is. Eternity with God in a heavenly city forever on this earth. No more grief, mourning, crying, or pain, because all of that belonged to a prior age. We will be free from sin, free from fear, free from doubt, free from physical and emotional pain. Our hearts will work perfectly, and our worship will be full and without sin. I cannot wait for that day. We worship sometimes, and I just, my heart is weighed down. It's not, I'm not thinking clearly, whatever it might be. And, and I, my heart feels like a lead weight in my chest, and I just want to be free to worship God with all of my heart and no longer be weighed down by sin. Now that's coming. The universe will be ours, and we will rule with Jesus Christ forever and join the presence of God in the fellowship of our brothers and sisters forever. That is the promise that is to come. When this future reality is clear before the eyes of our hearts, I believe that like Abraham and the others, we will be able to endure trouble and disappointment and suffering and difficulty in this life. Why? Why? Because we, our people have strong physical constitutions and we're naturally resilient? Is that why? Or because our daddy taught us how to make it on our own and not depend on anyone? Or because we know how to get things done? Is that why we'll make it? I hardly think so. We'll be able to endure because we've been given a promise of a future that will swallow up any trouble that we experienced in this life. That's how. That's how we get through the trouble. Don't give me any other promise than the promise that God has made in His Word about this future inheritance that He will give His people. And then lastly here, as we close out this text, back to Revelation. What does God think about this kind of faith? What does he think about it when we exercise this kind of faith? And when we grab a hold of a future promise, we look through our circumstances and we behold a faithful God who will make good on his word. What does God think of that? He loves it. He loves that kind of faith. He's not ashamed to call you his child. 
Look at verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because they're believing in precisely what He promised, for He has prepared for them a city. He's made the promise. And when you take Him at His word, He loves it. It shows Him and displays Him as faithful. And even though you are sinners, and sinners just like Abraham, I mean, this is what's amazing. Throughout the scripture, God is called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you start reading the narratives of those three scoundrels, and you find out that they were far from perfect. Far from perfect. Yet, they believed God. They were sinners, and they held on to God's promise. should be such an encouragement that God is not counting every individual sin and getting ready to, to slap you around someday, but rather He's looking at the faith that you put in the promises that He has made and given to you. He knows you're a sinner. He knows I'm a sinner. He's forgiven us of our sins. What pleases Him is when we believe His promises. And when you do that, though you are a sinner, though I'm a sinner, He is not ashamed to be called your God or to be called my God. Faith that looks for a heavenly city is a faith that pleases the living God. He loves it, and He will not be ashamed to be called your God, and He will own you as His own when you stand before Him someday at the final judgment, and everyone is there, and God will say, You are mine, because you believed my promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these wonderful texts. I pray that they would push us by faith through our present circumstances to behold a faithful God who never, ever reneges on His promises, who always makes good on His Word. I pray that You would help us to see clearly this promised heavenly future city. It's not cliche, it's real. And it's what you want us to rivet our hope on, a hope of heaven, a hope of eternity with you. And to not build our lives here. Yes, we are to be faithful stewards of what you have given us. And you've given us so much. And to whom much is, required, much is given, much will be required. Yet we are to set our eyes and our hopes on the next life because of how much trouble we all endure here. And God, I do pray that you'd help us. Give us this faith. And help us to persevere. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.